What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. It's your one-stop destination for everything involving the war on drugs and what the libertarians want to do about it. And we've had quite an interesting week here in this country. Um, the Red Hats marched on marched on the national capital as, in retaliation. Uh, it would appear that Donald J. Trump has been deplatformed across the board. Uh, Apple and Google have gone so far as to pull Parler off of their respective platforms. So, yeah, I don't know, man. That happened pretty quick. Um, I mean, the writing on the wall has been there for a while. And Trump's not an innocent party by any means, man. Like, the, the dude, the dude's talked a lot of shit, you know. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, kind of uncertain times right now. And during uncertain times, I think the best thing for me to do is prioritize, you know, what's most important to me. And, you know, the goal of this podcast is to help paint a picture of libertarians as being other than hedonists, you know, who are, who are unhinged and, you know, kind of point out that there's many of us in this movement, many of us in the party and in the movement alike who we don't partake we are either in recovery or simply we're just don't do anything you know we're straight edge and so um with the interview that we have today which guys you're in for a treat this is an awesome awesome interview you're about to hear today but this is also an announcement that the very beginning uh stages of trying to formulate a new caucus within the libertarian party is is formulating and i i don't know what the hell i'm doing <laughs> i'm not even a hundred percent on what the hell a caucus is besides a group of people who are trying to you know maneuver the party in a certain direction but i think it would be pertinent and useful for us to have a straight edge caucus within the libertarian party and what that would consist of is people like i said who are you know either in recovery or they don't partake who can kind of provide some nuance on the discussion of ending the drug war and ending prohibition um you know it 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 would carry a lot of weight with the general public or maybe somebody on the outside looking in to have someone who you know is principled in their position you know such as somebody like myself like i don't use drugs but i think that you should be able to use drugs you know i think that 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 would carry some weight and so um and you know as my my guest talks about you know whenever these conventions roll around or or libertarian meetups happen you know it does seem like there's a lot of people who you know they get together and they drink and whatever and for some of us that's not our that's not our thing that's not how we get down through there anymore and so really this is just a the beginning stages of a network of individuals who are all kind of after the same goals in life and so i would like to formally announce the creation or the beginning of the straight edge libertarian party caucus or the straight edge caucus i don't know we can work on the name later but straight edge liberty that's the thing right and so uh yeah i'm pumped up about it and i'm equally pumped up about the interview that we had today uh kim ruff is somebody who i was really interested in and in having on i've been looking forward to this interview for a while now um she her and john phillips ran for the uh presidential vice presidential you know 
nomination within the Libertarian Party this last year. And I'll let her tell you what happened there and why it ended and all that. But this is a powerful interview with somebody who uh, she got gut level honest with us, man. And it's just, I don't know, it's a beautiful thing whenever somebody has faced their their demons and and figured out you know the best way forward and they're they're working on themselves it's a beautiful thing and so um with that i'm gonna shut up and stop rambling and bring on kim ruff all right and i am here with the always amazing always wonderful kim ruff kim thank you so much for coming on how are you doing today i'm doing very well drew thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to talk about this with you yeah, hundred percent. This is uh, this has been an interview I've been looking forward to for a while now. Um, and you know, I'm I'm fairly new to the libertarian movement. I would say within the last four years, easily. So I know that you have been around a lot longer than that. And so I I, I ran across uh, you whenever you were running for uh, office, or you and John Phillips were, you know, seeking the nomination and. Beyond that, like, is there what kind of introduction would you like to give? Like, what what would be who you are within the liberty movement today? In the specifics of the liberty movement, um, my my past history, I got involved in two thousand and nine after I graduated from ASU. Um, my specific involvement had been more administrative or intraparty political. You know, s- sitting on committees or doing projects like voter registration drives or or staffing out events, things of that nature. When I lived in New York for a short while, I had set up a chapter, a county affiliate there, worked with some people in my community. So we put that together. And then I was their secretary up until the time that I got divorced and moved back to Arizona. So most of what I'd done up until John and I had made the decision to seek the Libertarian Party nomination for president and vice president, respectively, was a lot more support and backup for both the affiliates and for candidates who are running for office. At the time, it had never occurred to me to even consider being a candidate. And a lot of it is because I've always considered myself more behind the camera or behind the scenes than face forward. So it wasn't until this Pasco, and even the reason why we did it wasn't to put ourselves in front of the camera per se. We did it more because we felt that there was a real deficit in people communicating accurately and authentically these principles that undergird our philosophy and how that translates into meaningful policy. So John and I thought, well, what the hell and why not? We're, We're perfectly capable of articulating these things. Let's go in and help change the conversation. And then invariably, it will open up the field to possibly far superior candidates who will ultimately take the nomination and run with it, which is essentially what happened with, with Spike Cohen winning the nomination. So yeah, that that's, but then I just loved being a candidate so much because you get to talk to people, you know, you get to travel around and talk to people and, and engage in a very direct, meaningful conversation about these ideas and how that impacts your community. So I actually think that that's the route that I will continue to stay in is being a candidate in some capacity or another, which is why I'm now running for state mine inspector. See, and, and I would have to say that both you and John have, have imparted onto me like a very specific part of what I consider to be like my current, you know, philosophy, which is, you know, libertarianism, um, you know, and so what you're good at, I feel like you're pursuing and I'm just glad to see that we're all the better for it. So thanks for doing that. Um, You're you're welcome. I hope, I really, really hope. And I I hope that other people kind of took this away from our campaign was, 
I wanted to impress upon people that I am in I am just another human being like them. You know, I'm not endowed with some greater capacity or capabilities than most people. I'm not superior intellect or anything of that nature. I happen to quote unquote word good because I come from a communication background, but that doesn't make me smarter than the next person or or more qualified. So I hope that other people in the liberty movement could see a little bit of themselves reflected in that and feel emboldened to take that step too if they previously had been shy. So if, you know, I, if I think it's great that people were inspired by it because that was precisely the goal is to get people energized and enthusiastic and and reaching out of their comfort zone and doing something that previously they thought maybe they couldn't. Yeah, I mean that's tough. I I, I am an extroverted introvert. <laughs> you know, <what> I, mean? <laughs> I find myself in social situations and I'm like, why the fuck am I here? What am I doing? Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like we. I met Joe I, I, and that's kind of like how I got the the perception of Joe a little bit like and she got way better towards the end of her campaign but her first appearance after the uh, convention was the OKLP convention that we had and at the beginning of it like she was real stiff but at towards the end she was getting loosened up and so like I was able to identify a lot with that in that moment and it just was kind of like one of those things. I was like, man, I could never run for fucking office. There's not a chance in hell. Like that's just too much it's sensory overload. People talking to me, you know? Oh, it is most undoubtedly. I, I am actually with you. I am very much like barely on the cusp of being an extrovert. I am much more of an introvert in a small group setting. I thrive, but if it's larger than that, I am always that person who's like, in the patio smoking a cigarette and I'll just talk to who comes sits by me. So it is very, very difficult. It required quite a bit of push to even put myself out there. Um, And a lot of that kind of dovetails into what we're actually going to be talking about today, you know, needing to feel a little more emboldened and leaning on certain crutches that ultimately turn out to be incredibly disastrous for you and really rob you of that opportunity for personal growth because you rely on them. Well, you brought it up, so let's get into let's, it. Let's get into it. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about our mistakes. That's always fun. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Let's have a I, I, <laughs> mistake showdown right here. Right. Um, I think you know one of those philosophies that I lived by for a very long time was find what you love and let it kill you, right? And I don't know if you can identify with that or not, but I I, I have a sneaking suspicion that you could. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, on that, to find what you love and and let it kill you, I'd actually say that is in large part the liberty movement. That that is really the thing. It it is so much more complex than just being a simple matter of, I want to be involved in politics. Because I don't want to be involved in politics. I never did. That was never a prime motivator for me growing up or even why I sought the degrees I did, even getting a, a dual baccalaureates in communication and political science, the political science was like a throwaway. I took a bunch of extra political science courses just because I found it interesting as part of those, just to flesh out that 120 hours to get my university degree. And my counselor was like, you know, if you took one more class, you could have a double major. So it was never it was never my intent to get involved in politics or, or be a political person or even an office holder per se. But it gets to a point where you realize that if you don't stand up and get involved, because it's not like it's escapable. We none of us have the luxury of opting out, even if we wanted to. 
if you don't get up and get involved, then you're going to have them continue them being elected officials who are coming from the wrong framework, run roughshod over your natural rights. So you have a duty for yourself, your community, your family, your friends, your loved ones in your area to be an outspoken advocate for the things that you believe in and to advocate all the time for liberty and natural rights. So that's kind of the weird thing, like why I'm here. And even when I get really frustrated and fed up or burnt out, which happens, we're a volunteer-based organization, I can't not come back. I have to come back because it's still our lives. It is truly an existential thing for us. So there are, of course, people in our little paddling pool who are hell-bent on domination, which is just absurd. (laughs) But most of us are really looking at it from a, if we don't do something, it is only going to get worse. And the worse will get to a point where we will have absolutely no options left. And that's not, that is not a place I want to be and not a place I want my children to be. Yeah, yeah, I I can I can agree with you on that one. Um now we'll we'll get back to the to the other bit. So Kim, you know, the the reason that I brought you on and you were very open about it and I'm very grateful for it is you know kind of some of the struggles that you've had. Yes. Um so you want to kind of lay that out for us? Yes, a let's bit? let's do it like an AA meeting. <laughs> let's do it. Let's just yeah. get on. <laughs> All right. Summon the gust of, of Bill W. real quick. We'll we'll get him in here. Let me get into physical position. Excuse me. Like I'm at the dais. <laughs> I'm like, all right. Okay. Uh, Hello. My name is Kim Ruff, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, <laughs> so, <Kim>. hi. <laughs> I am here uh, to talk to you guys about this today because I know that a lot of people struggle with addiction, and alcohol is. I don't know if it is the most you know, if the highest volume of addicts are alcoholics as well, or if it is just a separate component or equivalent to, but alcoholism is something that we struggle with. And I think that particularly when we are in a difficult situation as we are in this country right now, where we have limited economic opportunities and we're starting to feel really trapped, we lean on some of these substances in order to take away that pain or to help us cope. Um, So, I think that alcoholism is a a huge concern. I don't advocate at all for prohibition. Clearly that went terribly. (laughs) That did not go well. And I wish that that maybe people would wise up to the fact that if it didn't work for alcohol, why in the Sam Hill would it work for any other substance? But, um, like we would not have the cartels in Mexico if it wasn't for the war on drugs, folks. <laughs> we right. could have open borders and you wouldn't be so scared if it wasn't yeah. for the war on drugs. So yeah, so here's my my personal experience and in, in journey with alcoholism. So I the first time that I ever was exposed to alcohol, I was 16. And contextually, and this is now that I'm adult, I, I'm actually pretty pissed about this because you're like, what a shitty, shitty parent. So my my folks are fantastic. Uh, but what it was is that I'd gone over to my, at the time, best friend in high school's house for a post-divorce slash Christmas party with her mom. And so a bunch of us kids who were juniors or, yeah, we were juniors in high school, had gone over to, to hang out and spend the night at my friend's house. And her brother, who was home from college and, and 19, had brought 100 proof tequila And that is the very first time that I had ever tried alcohol. And that is a really good way to not become an alcoholic, actually, because 100 proof tequila for somebody who's never even tried alcohol was horrendous. Yeah. But 
that wasn't enough to discourage me from doing it because it's so integrated into our social culture that you are going to have other opportunities and be exposed to it. And if you're a particularly insecure person like I was for a very, very long time, you want to kind of blend in more and be more with the crowd or not seem like odd man out on get together. So I, uh, uh, you know, I drank, I was exposed to and, and had alcohol when I went to ASU. Uh, the first time I'd actually gone to ASU right out of high school for about a year. I was majoring in history and I had gone to some frat parties and been exposed to alcohol and being very young and dumb and away from home, had engaged in some risky behaviors and had had some things happen to me that in hindsight, you could argue were equivalent to date rape. But at the time, I essentially just play, you know, wiped it off my sleeve and acted like, well, this is because I was drunk. Like, had I not been drunk, then this would not have happened. So that was just, that was, to me, a regret is how I processed it and, you know, kind of just tucked that away back in my mind. But that didn't stop me from continuing to actually use alcohol as both an anesthetizer and a social lubricant all the way up through, like, all through my 20s, essentially. Like, it was... You, you would go to class or whatever, and then your goal afterward was like, we're going to go out to the bar and have some drinks and, and sing karaoke or whatever. And every romantic relationship that I ever embarked on or any sexual encounter I ever had, it was invariably the wheels were greased with alcohol because I was so insecure and so uncomfortable in my own skin and body that I didn't feel emboldened enough to even be physical with somebody unless I was lit. So a lot of that you know, like in hindsight, if I reflect on my my number of how many people I've been intimate with, it would be reduced by about three quarters if it was just distilled down to people I legitimately had a relationship with and hadn't just been intimate with strictly because I was drinking or I chose to drink in order to to make it a little bit more easier for me to do that or, or to make it okay. So there... <clears throat> I think the first time that I, I really even thought about my drinking as being problematic was when I was about 24, 24, 25. Uh, I had decided to go back to school. So I said I went to ASU for about a year. I did abysmally. I actually got like a D in plant biology and I'd taken calculus even though I was a liberal arts major because I was like, well, I took pre-calc in high school. I should be able to do calculus and failed that, took it again and got a D. So I did really, really shitty. I think my GPA after my first year at ASU was like one point eight or something just ridiculous. Like I should have been in an episode of Animal House where they're like, this is this is terrible. So I dropped out of college for a couple of years and I didn't go back until my mid-20s. And in my mid-20s, I went to Scottsdale Community College to do the film program. And that I did very, I was very, very dedicated to that. Like I worked full time. I had two part-time gigs. And then I also went to school full time to get my degree. And I'm, I'm really good at about maximizing my output when I'm sober. It's just what I do in my off hours that becomes a problem. So one of the things that I'd done it was I had watched the movie Days of Wine and Roses that stars Jack Lemmon in it. And it's a, it's a fantastic movie if you've never seen it. But the gist of it is, is that he... He's like a salesperson or something for some firm in downtown New York. He's a heavy drinker. He meets this lovely girl. I think she was like an, 
I, I might be conflating it with a, the apartment, but he meets a gal, falls in love with her. She's never had a drink in her life. And then in the course of spending time with her, he gets her to start drinking. And then she starts drinking very heavily too. And then both of them are essentially full-blown alcoholics. And toward the three-quarter point of the movie, they both conclude that they need to do something about it. So they go to stay with her father in the countryside to, to dry out. But they had brought a couple of bottles of brandy and hid them in his greenhouse. And when they realized that they were starting to get those DTs and the cravings again, they went into the greenhouse and absolutely tore it apart because they couldn't remember where they kept those brandy bottles. And that was that moment of awakening in the story. Lemon's character goes on to get sober and they part company. She unfortunately never does. But it was such a scary, horrible, sad movie absolutely heartbreaking and there i am sucking on a beer washing it which is like <laughs> you know the irony is not lost on me yeah, yeah. And of course my big i think with most women actually they could argue this as well it, it isn't about the frequency it was about the volume i'm absolutely a binge drinker it's not i could go a good chunk of time without drinking but when I drank, it was like that governor was off and then you would just keep, keep, keep drinking. Yeah. Um, so at about my mid-20s, having seen that movie, there was that that pause where I thought, you know, maybe I have an issue here and maybe I need to pump the brakes or dial it back. But that wasn't enough, obviously, for me to quit. So I go through my late 20s. I'm in a, a long-term meaningful relationship with somebody. We were engaged to be married. His father had been an alcoholic and had died of cirrhosis, which had really been a gut check for him, the, my fiance at the time, where he's like, you know, I am genetically predisposed to addiction. My father struggled with it and was a very terrible father as a result of his addiction. So I, maybe I need to reevaluate my own behavior. And I was like, well, in an act of solidarity, I'll quit drinking and go to AA with you too. But that didn't mean I acknowledged my own issues at the time. So we went to AA and I we stayed off it a little bit, but you engage in that internal messaging that's like, well, but I'm really not that bad. And I'm really, I can control this. And there's been plenty of times where I've had just one or two drinks and been just fine. And so you justify and convince yourself that you can pick it up back again. So fast forward <laughs> into my thirties. So actually, uh, that relationship ended due to emotional immaturity on both of our parts. We were just young and dumb and didn't have the proper skills to, to foster a healthy relationship. It wasn't a toxic, shitty relationship. It was a good one. We were just young and dumb. Then I meet who became my first husband. And he is a big drinker. I mean, he was in, he was raised in the Air Force because his dad was active duty. And the Air Force very much has that culture of drinking. So they're like a fraternity. And then you know, my first ex-husband had gone to college and been in a fraternity and drank heavily. And then, of course, he went in the Air Force. So, again, he's drinking heavily. And that relationship helped me justify my own high consumption of alcohol. Like, I'm a party girl. That's what I do. Like, I'm the one you take to your parties and I'll, I'll get shit-faced and I'll make jokes and I'll entertain everybody and it'll be a good time. And because of my first ex-husband's drinking... 
at like when we met, it it justified my own. And the irony of it though is that at the time that we met, I had actually decided I was going to go on a year-long period of sobriety. I started a blog that was like 365 days of sobriety and celibacy because I was like I need to not date, I need to not drink, I need to just get my my head right. And then I met him and I think that was out the window within a matter of like a week. Seriously, because <laughs> I was like, "Oh, it's on!" <laughs> <laughs> have to quit, don't it? Right. It like, here's the beer. Let's let's make out. So, <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, because of that, um, because that kind of justified it, and because of the fact that I, you know, when you're covering up your insecurities with substances, you're not really tapping the root of your own lack of self-worth than your low self-esteem. So you use it as a way to kind of bridge that gap. And I almost felt oh, yeah. at the time like I had pulled I had pulled a fast one like wow, I convinced this handsome young man to really like me. Like I need to be all these things to him in order to conceal that I'm I'm imperfect. And it actually turned into an incredibly abusive relationship. Like the drinking became far worse. I got pregnant so I stopped drinking altogether. And things change when you have kids. Like there is a bit of a shift where you're like, "Wait, I need to be a lot more responsible and reasonable." Um, but he, he didn't. And then after my, my, both my children were born, it wasn't too long before I was drinking again too, in order to keep pace with him. And when our relationship fell apart, even though I could totally acknowledge that his alcoholism made him kind of Jekyll and Hyde where he was perfectly normal when he was sober, but when he was drunk, he was a monster. Even though I could acknowledge that in him, I still did not acknowledge how my drinking and my own contribution made me basically a sitting duck for somebody who was going to take advantage of me and treat me and my children poorly. So I subsequently, a couple years later, thinking like, oh, I've healed from my first marriage, turned around and got married to another person who was essentially the exact same person I just left, which if that doesn't ever become a gobsmack for you, I don't know what is because I, at that point when I was like, I just, I essentially re-traumatized myself. Like I exposed my children to another person just like their father. Yeah. Um, and I put myself in a really untenable and incredibly destructive situation and invited an abuser into my home. So I had told my friends right afterward, I'm like, I, f I feel like I just re-traumatized myself that everything that I had recovered from having been in that first abusive relationship, I, I turned around and, and effectively had it replicated. Not to the extent we weren't together long enough for that to build. But I you, once you've been through it and you see the cycle of abuse, like you can see the writing on the wall with people's behavior. And that was definitely going in that direction. So when it when it ended, I was right in the middle of the presidential campaign. Like we parted company in early September and all property was separated by early October. And then the divorce was finalized by early November. So Damn, I went to quick. It was. Yeah. Thank God that Arizona has a very quick turnaround. And we didn't have any dispute over assets because I basically said, I'll take on all the debt that you you brought into this relationship if you'll just leave. So, um, so, and of course that's a, a very appealing agreement to somebody yeah. who, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was, that was pretty quick and pretty easy to get him to sign. I just was like, I'm not, 
I'll, you keep what, what's yours and I will take on the debt that has been brought into this relationship. So, yeah, so that all happened pretty quickly. And then right after that relationship ended or right around the time that this, I realize this is so scattered because there's so many different things that feed You're into good. it. But at the same time that I was married to this individual and even preceding that, because I was only married to my second husband for maybe about, let's see, we got married in February, I think. No, maybe it was March, April. We got married in April and then we got divorced by November. So we weren't together that long. But for during that time before and a little bit after, I worked for two and a half years for a plastic and steel fabricator in central Phoenix. And my boss had to give you some idea about the chaotic environment that I lived in. I got hired to work as a media and marketing manager. I held that position for all of three weeks before then he also had me do outside sales because our salesperson had quit. And then also was having me do project management for this huge contract that they had gotten that they were in over their head on. And then and I had that all happen within a matter of just a, a couple of months. Like I got hired in July and by October I was doing these three roles and I was, I was stressed out. It was just too much. And then by January, our operations director had gotten let go. And so I got put in that position. So in less than a year, I went through four different job titles and then was suddenly the second person in control, like the, the second in charge. Right. Which you would think would be more of a testament to my skills. But if anything, I think it was it was more illustrative of how crazy that environment was, how chaotic and how unpredictable it was. And because of that unpredictableness and because of a lot of things that my boss had did, the business decisions that he'd made, you know, contracts he'd signed but not review or violations that he'd do in terms of safety or health or workers' rights. Um, a lot of those very scary things were stressful because I always felt like I was, as second in charge, responsible for basically, are we allowed to cuss on this show? Absolutely. Fucking literally. Okay, yes. good. Yeah. I basically like my job was unfucking his messes. Like he made a lot of messes that were incredibly destructive and difficult. Um, and were hard on the staff. You know, we had about 40 people who worked there. And so I basically was a functional intermediary between him and the rest of the staff who were terrified of him. So that was the, the, who I was working for, for two and a half years while going to family court to fight with my first ex-husband over child support over the course of eight months, while going through this second marriage with somebody who turned out to be just like my first ex-husband, and while running for president. Like, Jesus you bet your ass Christ, I was man. having my eyeballs in alcohol at the time. Oh. I put on 65 pounds in a matter of a year. I gained, like, you can see me on camera now. I lost all of that as soon as I quit drinking. Yeah. Like I just yeah. so you much weight. Great, by the way, like, you, oh yeah, straight up, like from where you were to where you are now, like my God, you are you look very healthy today. Yeah, it's a world of difference. It's absolutely wild, but it was just all these stressors and the way that I would cope with it was abusing alcohol. So when that second relationship ended, I basically imploded. Like a, two weeks later, after the divorce was finalized. Right before Thanksgiving, my boss gave me a card that said, thank you for all your hard work and a $100 gift certificate to the grocery store because that's what he gave out to staff for Thanksgiving. And then when I went into his office to thank him, 
He fucking fired me because he just hired somebody the day before to take over my job. Here's the kicker. He had given me a raise two weeks earlier, but also told me that he was worried about my ability to work the hours that I'd previously been working because now with my second ex-husband gone, he was like, you know, I thought that he was destructive and unhealthy for you, but I didn't want to discourage you because I knew you'd work more for me. But now that he's not there, I don't know if you can keep doing your job. So that he had gone behind my back and went and hired somebody else to replace me, but he gave me a raise to keep me from leaving, then gave me that gift certificate and then shit canned me a week before Thanksgiving. That's so, fucked up. dude, it was like everything came in on me. Like that relationship blew up. This happened with my job and I'm in the middle of a presidential campaign where I got to somehow like be able to parlay you know, be emotionally centered and mentally strong and educate people and, and convince them that liberty is the right way to go. And I was like, my world is, is falling apart. So <clears throat> it was just, it was too much. It, it was too much. And I think that's really what made me sort of bottom out. But I had actually proper quit drinking August 1st of 2019. And the reason why I quit drinking is because of the fact that my second ex-husband is a raging alcoholic. Like when he moved out, I found empty bottles he'd hidden all over the house because he was concealing how much he was drinking from me. And I, yeah, I quit at that time to encourage him to consider scaling it back. And then our decision to get divorced was a month later after he like did some things that were hugely horrible. So the to get back to me and my relationship with alcohol when you're sifting through this stuff like when when you kind of bottom out and you have all these things come on you at one time you are really forced to reevaluate your life and you can't control what other people do or say or who they are but you do have to ask yourself like what level of responsibility or influence you have in that situation and for me The biggest thing was because I was always so insecure and had such a really low self-esteem, I used alcohol as a social lubricant. I used alcohol as a way to feel emboldened or stronger or braver or take that edge off of my anxiety and nervousness that I've had forever. I mean, I always have been an anxious person and a really nervous person. So I'd use that to calm myself down or level myself out. But in so doing, I never addressed these root issues. I never asked myself, like, why am I so insecure? And does that actually hold weight? And what can I do to improve myself independent of these things? Instead, I would just anesthetize and conceal. And that made me very vulnerable to people who are abusive. And it also made me seek out people like that because it reinforced that ingrained script that said, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And this is as good as it's going to get. Further, being with people who are alcoholic was because it concealed the fact that my drinking was problematic. I'm not as bad as they were. I would tell myself like, Yeah, I may be, you know, I may have hit my head and given myself a a concussion that led me to pass out and vomit all over myself, but I'm not as bad as they are because I never did X, Y, Z. Or yeah, I may have had a situation where I, I drove drunk and by the grace of God did not get in a car accident, but I was never as bad as they were because at least I can stop. So that 
I think it really, in a way, those relationships sort of concealed these problems, while at the same time, the post-relationship analysis brought them to the fore. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of been my my experience with alcohol is that I, I've used it as a way to make myself feel a little bit less uncomfortable in my own skin, but mm-hmm. that doesn't change anything. In, in no. fact, it's actually a very much a compounding thing. Drinking make like leads to risky behavior and strange and very bad situations that create more regrets and more shame that lead you to drink more to cope with it. So it's very much like a vicious cycle. I, the things that started me drinking were, you know, being like that shy schoolgirl and uncomfortable in my own skin, which is a, a normal experience for most people. I think most of us feel like we struggle with that imposter syndrome and, and whether or not we're worthy. Um, but then in the course of drinking, like I did, I engaged in behaviors and had situations happen that really, really just reinforced that insecurity and, and made me feel like such an extreme piece of shit that I had to keep drinking. So it has been at this point, let's see, it has been over a year. We are what in January. So it's been a year and four months. Yeah, a year Ooh. and four months since I've had a drop of alcohol, which is good. All right. Yeah, but boy, do you ever realize after you quit drinking or after you quit using substances, how much of our culture is built around it? Like, yep. Everybody, yep. you know that old song, like everyone's working for the weekend. Like, no, it should be revised. Like, everyone's working to go to the bar. Like yeah. every single day after work, it's like, well, let's go to the bar. It was stressful. Or let's go to the bar. It was a good day. Let's go to the bar because uh, I owe the tax man. I owe the IRS a million dollars. Or let's go to the bar because I just got, you know, I just won the lottery. Like, it's a thing that you do to like commemorate every both good and bad experience in your life. And it just becomes like a habit. And I, like I've gone to a couple events with coworkers and stuff since then as a non-drinker. And I got to tell you the truth, like it sucks being around drunk people. It totally, totally sucks. <laughs> I'm not like it's a- definitely interesting. I'll, I'll say that. It's like, man- I don't know. It's like getting a, a, a ticket, a free VIP ticket to a band that you don't like, right? Like, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. You're like, yeah. I got to go behind the stage and talk to Hanson. Like, <laughs> which is not fair because they're probably very nice young men. But I'm you know sure they I mean? are. Yeah. I <laughs> like, and they, I think they're teetotalers too, which is probably what makes that ironic. But yeah, when you are around a bunch of drunk people, you, you feel like you're undercover, even yeah. though you're just standing right there. People will yeah. tell you things. They will like they'll emotionally bloodlet all over you. They're very quick to anger. There is nothing more terrifying having been in those two relationships and even now having seen people drunk engage in this stuff. There's nothing more terrifying than trying to deal with an angry, irrational drunk. I just yeah. I find it absolutely scary because it's like, they're not there. That person, it, it, like who you're talking to, who you're dealing with, like that is not them. 
the person they are when they're sober is completely different. And it's, it's, you cannot reason with a drunk about the best thing you can do with an angry drunk is lock yourself into another room and hope that they pass out eventually and sleep it off. And then GTFO, if that's the way they do, because yeah, there are plenty of evenings, particularly my first marriage, because he'd move, we'd move from Arizona to Little Rock and then ultimately to Lockport, New York. And in the middle of winter, had one vehicle and didn't know anybody. And then we had two babies. A month, we had a six-month-old. My son was six months at the time. And my daughter was like a shade over two years. And I, I didn't know anyone when we had no way of going anywhere. And at one point, when he was really, really drunk, um, you know, he cornered me again and he was berating me as he would often do. And I got fed up and I grabbed a suitcase and started just throwing things into it. And I'm like, I'm taking the kids and I'm leaving. And he got really cold and quiet and still. And he said, where are you going to go? You don't have a car. You don't have any money. You don't know anyone. No one is going to come for you. And that was like, Oh, ice blue. Yeah. Like blood runs cold. <laughs> like yeah. it, it's terrifying. So that, uh, that's kind of been my experience with it, but I've had so many, what would be considered wake up calls. And it was enough for me to put a pin in it for maybe a month at max, you know, be like, Oh, I need to, I need to stop. But then you start again. You'd have a beer here and be fine. And then you'd have two beers there and you'd be fine. Then you'd have three beers here or four beers here. And, or you'd, you'd get completely shit faced, but nothing insane would happen. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well maybe that was just a bad time then. Uh And then invariably you'd, you'd have an event again that would scare the shit out of you. And you'd turn, you'd go sober for a while and then you'd start ramping it back up again. Yeah. So yeah, that's the uh, that's kind of the thing. Like, <clears throat> I talk about this with with my friends. You know, I did the the meetings a lot. I'm one of the meeting cats, and we talk about like, you know, if I ha- relapse is like having sex with a gorilla, right? It's not over till the gorilla says so. Right. So it's going to keep going no matter what. Now I could maybe skirt the consequences on one or two times. Go have a drink. You know, and just, or maybe for in my case, you know, like go have a joint because, you know, uh, whatever. But right. every single time I give into that and it's, it goes, it goes left so damn fast, so damn fast. <laughs> yeah. You know, breakneck speed. <clears throat> yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Like that is, you know, between the time that I had my first drink at 16 and the time that I decided to quit drinking at 38 you're talking about 22 years. And then between the time that I first had that, maybe I have a problem here. That was a matter of what, 14 years. Yeah. 14 years. So over the course of 14 years, I think I have had a long enough sample size (laughs) in my own personal experience to be able to say, I absolutely cannot, must not be trusted with alcohol. I have tried multiple times to moderate and I can't, I just can't. Even if I'm good for that one sitting, you're absolutely right. Like even if you skirt the consequences that one time, it always, every single time without fail, 
goes down the same path because once you get that, that's the thing about being an addict. Like once that substance touches your brain and those neurotransmitters make that connection, you get that rush of dopamine, that rush of endorphins and all those good feelings that substances will give to you because they do. We wouldn't do them if they didn't make us feel better. Then it starts to change that chemistry in your thinking. Like you're once again rationalizing like, oh, well, just one more. Or maybe I'll just do this. Or just today. And it's just again, again, and again. So the only way to to avoid that is to not even start. Like I've told my kids because of the fact that both their parents are alcoholics and both their parents come from a long line of alcoholics. My, my folks, my mom says that she struggled with it. I never observed her saying it. So I can't testify yay or nay. She like, she kept that from us, but she said that she had a struggle with that herself. Her dad was an alcoholic. Some of her siblings struggle with substance abuse. Same thing with my first husband's side of his family, his mom's in recovery. I mean, we come from these, my kids come from these long lines of addicts. Like they absolutely cannot for their own sake ever even touch it. They'll never, ever be able to just have a casual relationship with anything because they're already predisposed to be an addict. Yeah. When cats sit together, they make kittens, you know? Right. So (laughs) so I'm just like, you, you can never, you can never have this. I, I don't, you know, and it's funny, especially being a libertarian and having the opinion that I do on the war on drugs and on prohibition and on substance abuse. You know, I am vehemently opposed to any sort of government action whatsoever regarding those because of the fact that, you know, for a lot of us, what's taboo becomes more interesting and it doesn't actually tap the root of addiction or substance abuse. It, tre- it makes criminals out of what is essentially a disease. You know, it's criminalizing a disease. And that is c- incredibly messed up. I mean, it's like kind of how we handled people with mental health issues. We would just warehouse them or penalize them as opposed to actually tapping the root. And this is very much of that same line. So coming from that framework, I've always been in the opinion that like you don't make a scary monster out of these substances. You just tell people the truth. I think you remember we went through the D.A.R.E. program when we were kids and they were oh, like, yeah. yeah, and they were like, just one time. Which is complete <laughs> BS usually. It's bullshit. Like, yeah. Right. Like helping. I mean, I've done drugs too. I didn't get into drugs the way I did alcohol, but I definitely have done all sorts of drugs, especially in my early, like my late teens, early 20s. And I think that was like the biggest shock to me was that, well, I tried meth and I, I didn't lose all my teeth and lose my virginity in a urinal stall like they showed in some of the scary ads here in Arizona. Like that didn't happen, you know, or I had tried cocaine and I still have a job like I and I think that that's the thing that's like such a lie is to you need to be honest about what these substances do yes. and whether or not it's going to impact you. But you also need to be very honest that in a long enough timeline with repeated exposure to these things, particularly if you're genetically predisposed to be an addict or you have, you know, like a potential for depression or anxiety or other things that are going to kind of roll into that, that maybe you want to watch out for those things. Just, I think we need to be a lot more honest about that instead of trying to make it this scary monster, because when people realize it's not a scary monster per se, then is when they start using it. And then is when they start ramping it up. And then is where they have the real possibility for addiction. Yeah. And that's, it's funny that you mentioned dare, because I remember that dare officer putting weed on the same level as heroin. 
And, and marijuana was the first ellipse, illicit substance that I ever tried. I think I did pot before I ever even touched alcohol. And I remember smoking weed and not having the consequences they swore would happen. And right. in my mind right there, I'm like, well, shit, they're lying about everything then, you know, and <laughs> some of it, they weren't too far off, you know, <laughs> like right. black tar heroin's pretty fucking bad for you. You know, maybe you shouldn't do that, but right. I, I'm right there with you. And, you know, you touched on a, on a, on a part that I, I really, this is the other reason that like, I'm so stoked about having you on is because we as libertarians have for better or for worse, kind of gotten this public image and stereotype out there that, that we are almost like hedonists, right? Like, right. you know, recreational cocaine and blah, 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 you know, all this. I think that you should be able to do recreational cocaine I do not think that you should do recreational cocaine though. Right. Like right. I can, yes. I can say both of those things and stay logically consistent. And, um, you know, that was kind of in this episode, I'm using this as an announcement that this is something and you showed some interest in it, but I, I hope that this comes to fruition, but a caucus within the libertarian party that is straight edge. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. And I think it would behoove us to start integrating that opportunity into any sort of gatherings that we have too. because I, I didn't even realize this. I'd mentioned this to you on the phone, but I didn't even realize how many people are either in recovery or just teetotalers. Yeah. Until I had said something to the effect of, you know, I'd hit my six months sobriety point and I'd posted it on Facebook. And the reason why I'd been so vocal about it is because I, I thought maybe somebody would see a little bit of themselves in that, but I had like hundreds of comments from people, active, hardworking members of our movement who are like, oh, it's been 22 years for me, or it's been two weeks for me, or you know, I don't do this or I'm in recovery or I, I just don't drink at all because my, you know, I was raised by alcoholics and I've chosen to eschew it entirely. And I was just like this, even as someone who's been in the movement since 2009, I didn't even realize how many people were straight edge. I was always in the impression that like, it was just like one big drug fueled orgy yeah. <laughs> together. And I was like, okay, I don't want to go to that room. You know, like right, that right. Was- <laughs> but then it, somebody had mentioned, and it was actually a girlfriend of mine up in Idaho, Jennifer Ann Luoma. She'd worked on my campaign and she's like, we should have like an AA meeting, like a, a get together or something or coffee at convention when at the time when we still thought national convention was going to be done in person. And I was like, that's a fantastic idea because when everybody else breaks off in the evening to go, you know, drink it up or, you know, carouse and party or, or go smoke pot in somebody's hotel room, the rest of us, like, we can get together and hang out and do something equally fun. Yeah, not have to go lame. Right. Like we could have a total riot, but just not yeah. be put in a situation that's going to tempt us or put us in danger, knowing that we have this caged tiger of an addiction that we struggle with. I got goosebumps. You just saying that there's so many people coming out of the woodwork because like I'm struggling to find them. You know, I'm finding them. I'm I'm so grateful to have you on. And you being who you are within the movement, you know, let's screw the party, just the Liberty movement as it is like, right, man, it's, it's huge. And so the implication here is exactly like you said, is that libertarians get together and it's a beautiful thing when we do. And I, man, how 
scared I was about the prospect of going to Austin before all the kerfuffle happened. And I was like, shit, nobody, everybody's going to be drinking. You know what right. I mean? Like I, I don't have anybody I can hang out with. And I was like trying to network and all that. And Spike Cohen was one of the ones who was like, Hey man, you know, reach out to me. I won't be drinking. Uh, Joshua Smith. He was another one. And you know, now there's you. And so man, we need to network these people together. We need to all. Yeah. yeah you know? no, in fact, I'll, I can go into social media after we wrap and then put out a call to people just be like, PM me with your information or, or just even respond on here. Like we're going to, we're going to put this together because it is, it is, you know, that like the main thing that kind of gets most of us uh, into even becoming addicts, notwithstanding that predisposition because you can have a predisposition but without a catalyst you don't get into it right and the catalyst is usually trauma of some kind there's some sort of trauma that you're working through and so you're you you are fragile I mean all of us to some extent or another are fragile but there's a greater fragility when you're in recovery because uh -huh. it's so new and so not your experience. So much of who you are and who you've been has been defined by this long-standing relationship with this substance or these substances that when it's gone, you're just like, you're kind of like as, as naked and raw as a newborn. And so you do need a greater level of protection with people around you in your community who are going through something and can be like, you're not alone. I validate your experience. Lean on me if you need it. I mean, that's why in AA, they're so big on getting you a sponsor. You are going to have hard times and you need somebody to lean on. Yeah. And knowing that you're not alone is powerful. It is like the most powerful counterbalance to addiction. So, because for the long time, your best friend was your, was your substance. That was yeah. what you went to for everything. Yeah, so, it, was, it was Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and they were both existing in your head. And you, it, when you get sober, you really are, you're attending a funeral for that alter ego that you had. And we have this horrible, horrible habit of only highlighting the good. Right. You know what I mean? Like we won't think back and be like, man, how shitty that was. Well, like, man, how fun was I? Like people used to love me when I was loaded, you know? Right. And but that's just not it. Obviously, you know, we, you and I both know that that's, that's not reality, but I think that we both know that because we've tried every which way. But <laughs> we really tried to work with it, you know? <laughs> I mean, we researched that shit, you know what I mean? Like master's degree. I don't, uh, I'm not a committed person. Okay. <laughs> you can't say that I don't just do the shit out of something. Cause yeah. I, do. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh shit. Okay. Um, and I really am glad and I we're I'm kind of late getting back to this part, but I really wanted to touch on it and, and drive it home because this is something that's so important to grasp hold of. You talked about these things that were present beyond the drinking. Right. Like it wasn't, I, I, I think that pivotal moment in any alcoholic or addict's life, whenever they're like, oh my God, it wasn't the substance. It wasn't the substance, yeah. you know, that underlying reason. And, you know, here's the thing, Kim is like, I needed the support system that I have to point out to me some of those things. Cause like when you're standing in a pile of shit, it's hard to tell how big that pile of shit is. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I need you to tell me, you know, some of that. So I, I just, and I, not even really 
I, I just wanted to thank you for bringing that part up because that's really important. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's to, to impress upon your listeners this, like this recovery is, has not just been me alone. Like I am so, so blessed to have a great family. Like my parents are absolute gems of people. And I actually feel totally terrible about this because I can't, they were never bad parents. They were always very, very good parents. So in a way I like, it's gotta be absolutely devastating for them to see their child whom they love so much, just abuse herself and put herself in abusive situations for so long. So a lot of my, you know, I joke with my mom, I'm like, there's not enough there's not a big enough bouquet of flowers to get you for Mother's Day as an apology. So, but my yeah. my folks are fantastic. And, you know, I have just incredible friends, many of whom were on the campaign with me. And they have been there even well past the campaign to, to be a real source of support and inspiration. And what's great about having people like that, like especially my friend Joey Mullins, um, he was the assistant to our campaign director, Emily Hurtley, him and Emily, my friend, Sarah Stewart in Tennessee and a couple other people, like they have known me for a long enough time and really well. So that when even certain events kind of just escape my memory, cause I think I'm a compartmentalizer with my feelings, which is another issue. Like I will just pack it away and out of sight, out of mind and forget about it. They'll be there to say like, no, 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 that's not what happened there. Like this is what happened. And this is why you have every right to be upset about it and why you felt the way that you do and why you did what you did, which is not to excuse any of my bad behavior. It doesn't excuse it, but it allows me the opportunity to see very clearly what all that is and deal with it appropriately as opposed to just saying, well, this is just alcohol and now the alcohol has gone. I'm done with that. You don't become, you don't do these things unless there's more to it. You don't get into it unless there's more to it. And that's the stuff that you really, that's, it's not just quitting the drugs. That's step one. You quit the substance, but everything that follows thereafter is like, like they do the 12 steps from the big blue book and in, in AA, like you've got to go and do a careful inventory. You have to go through all of your experiences, which is a very painful process. Like, woo, yeah. it is a road of regrets and shame. <laughs> like, I'm not about all of those. I am. I would just like to say right now to everyone that I have ever heard, I, it, and I hope this doesn't cause you any pain. I am so terrifically sorry. Like there was never, ever my desire to hurt anyone. I was mostly just trying to hurt myself. So, but yeah, that's the other thing with apologies. You learn how to properly atone through the 12 step program, because I think a lot of people miss that. They think that if they get somebody else to say, it's okay, it makes it okay. That's not how forgiveness works. No Atonement, true atonement is where you actually recognize how wrong it is. And independent of that person's experience or response to it, it's still wrong and you're still sorry for it. And you will do everything in your power to never replicate those mistakes again. That's legitimate atonement. And then the part about apologizing to others, that you have to very carefully weigh. Like, would me resurfacing in their life to apologize to them actually cause them trauma? Would that be a bad experience for them? Would it would it bring to the surface some very painful things for them that they've tried to put to bed? Because if that's the case, then you seeking out them to apologize is not a good idea. Like right. that's not a good apology. Sometimes you just have to be content to 
put that apology out into the universe and and have that be the case independent of how they're going to feel about it because they will what how they will yeah so. and a <laughs> funny story <laughs> like when i first started coming around in every meeting house you know they got the 12 steps on the wall and as a new person you gravitate towards like maybe three of them and obviously one of them is like the the amends part and so i mean i'm a weight clean I mean, I still got fucking track marks on my arm and I'm calling up one of my one of my old using buddies who I kicked in his door like a week before. And I'm like, hey, man, it's all good. I'm getting clean now. He's like, dude, you're a fucking asshole. You're always going to be an asshole. And it's like, oh, I guess I need to get a sponsor. Maybe, you know, work <laughs> steps a little differently and not just work them off the wall, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you, you, you know, you make a really good point. Um, we our word didn't mean shit. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for you, but for me, my word didn't mean a thing. I was giving the world the best that I had to give, which just wasn't much at the time. And so for me to come around and say, oh, I'm sorry, I had used that word out to, to no end. Right. I had, I had to learn how to start making amends by my actions instead of my words. Right. Yeah, no, you know you're I mean? you're absolutely right. And that is the truth. Like you are you are not your best self and you are not a reliable person. The only thing that you can really say is reliable about you is your relationship with your substance. Like that you can set a clock to. <laughs> Everything else you can't. So I could yeah, you're you're not alone in that. My there were plenty of broken promises, you know, not cardinal sins per se, but certainly like plans that I had intended to make or promises that I'd made, but then chose to bitch out on going to events or spending time with people because I would rather stay at home and drink and, you know, things like that. So there are plenty of times where I've disappointed people and let them down, haven't been as good of a friend as I could have been, uh, wasn't available when they really needed me because of my my alcoholism. And you're, you're absolutely right that sorry doesn't cut it. Sorry, sorry, truly doesn't cut it, really. You know, like we we do that crap with kids where we're like, okay, now apologize to so and so, but right. if they're going to turn around and replicate the behavior. That was a bullshit exercise. It doesn't matter if you apologize to somebody or not if you don't actually mean it and aren't going to make any meaningful changes. So you're right. Like the words, words are wind. And I think that's something regardless of whether or not it pertains to alcohol or any other addiction. I think that's really just sage advice for anyone in this world is words don't mean shit if you don't follow through. And that's really how you need to judge other people and how you need to judge yourself. It's not what you say, it's what you do. You can avoid a lot of heartache in your relationships, professional, personal, romantic, um, if you recognize that it doesn't matter what you say, what you do is what matters. And same from what you expect of other people. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think like, you know, I didn't used to look at my word like my given word as a portion of like my social credit score. But now that I do, you know what I mean? But it, that, that's exactly what it is. Is that like, if I know my credit score is shit, I'm not going to try to apply for credit somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the more, the more work I put into saying, Hey, I'm going to be at X place at, at, you know, X time. And I show up and I consistently follow through. I start taking pride, not only in the fact that I can tell somebody something and I know that they know I'll be there, 
but also that like I have some self-esteem again, right? Like I have, I don't feel like a piece of shit all the time. Just keeping my head down. Like, man, I, fuck, I suck. You know, like, um, my, my sponsor always says the definition of commitment is doing something long after the mood in which you made the decision has gone away. I like that. Right? Yeah. I like it too. Like, so that's one of those little 12 step hand grenades, you know, that gets tossed on you every now and again, but yeah, that aha moment where you're like, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's used it as a weapon on me several times. You know, like the first time I heard it, I was like, man, that's slick. You know, I think the third time I heard it, I was like, you're a motherfucker, man. <laughs> You fetched it to yourself, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that. you know, but that that's kind of one of those things. So um I, I, I can tell you that I'm better today than I was yesterday, you know, and, and just try to keep that progression going. Um well Kim, we just hit an hour and this is probably and not to say my other interviews weren't good because I've had some wonderful, wonderful interviews, but this has been my favorite one. This has been awesome. Well, well good. I'm glad. Uh, do you feel that I gave enough information to be able to kind of explain my experience with it? Because I know I got I, a little rambly and, and there's it's over such a long period of time and so many different events that it's kind of hard to piece it all together in one stream of conscious. I think from, from where I'm sitting, what you did was describe the problems that alcohol caused you. And you also described what you did to get out of that and what you're doing today currently. And I, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. You know, that's, that's what we need. You know, there was speaking of things that just really quickly before we, we wrap, I did want to say, um, I think one of the biggest things that I've concluded, and I think a lot of us in recovery kind of come to this where we, we have this whole huge environment that we live in. And then in order to recover, we make our world very small you know, basically make it small and make it manageable. Like what, what can I control? You know, the serenity prayer is absolutely in codified into that experience for a reason. And this is actually something that applies so directly to not just addicts and recovery, but also really just all human beings and our experience in the liberty movement too, which is you can get very overwhelmed when you look at the big picture. And I think a lot of people who are in the liberty movement are very much predisposed to being intuitive thinkers who are big picture people. So you can see all these global events going on and feel overwhelmed by it. Like, how am I supposed to deal with it? Yeah. And you have to just remind yourself, you know, bring that sphere of influence down to what's reasonable and achievable. I have a responsibility to take care of myself. I have the capacity to take care of my children and I have just enough left over to give to a couple of other people in my world. And that's it. Anything above and beyond that is too much of an ask and not something I can commit myself to because I know that that is going to kind of make this work that I've done so far to get here come undone. So we have to we have to do that, all of us as individuals, regardless. Find what you can control and focus your energy on controlling that. And everything else after that is purely a if you're willing to and capable of not like you're not obligated to do it. You don't have to be that person that society says you have to be or do the things that other people say you have to do. You only have to do right by you and the people in your immediate world. And that's, that's it. it. That's it. And you don't have to do it alone. 
No. You know, that's yeah. the thing. I, I I'm I know that you've been open to it, and I, I say it every episode is that like if you're listening to this and you feel like you're alone, you're not, you know, you're not. Um, and that's how we stay clean. That's how we stay sober. That's how we stay in this fight. I mean, beyond even the substances, just being a human being, you know, like we, we are biologically driven to, you know, operate within communities uh, of one another, you know? And so I'm just glad that this, this little circle that, that I've had is, is expanding. And I'm glad that you came on and shared your story. Cause that took, it, it takes balls to be gut level honest like that. It takes some courage that takes, yeah, that's hard to do, especially being somebody that that's as big as you are within the moment. And so I, I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for cutting out some time on this Saturday to come and talk to us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for creating this platform. I think, you know, like you were saying, it's a good way to counterbalance that perception. And it actually, I think, is more potent to show a bunch of people who have had problems with addiction or alcoholism come on and say, yeah, but even after all of that, I still mm -hmm. think and the war on drugs. I still think that we need to release people from prison who have had these experiences because these are victimless crimes. The only victim of addiction, the only real consistent victim is the addict themselves. Yeah. Like there are people in their world who are tangentially victimized by it, but it's the addict themselves who's the victim and yeah. punishing them further is not going to, to help them. That doesn't no. fix the problem. No, it doesn't at all. It, it it exacerbates it, you know, it makes it so much worse. Um, and it, one of the things that I like to do, uh, especially when somebody shares their story is, Kim, if you could talk to that one person that's in the audience today, excuse my dogs, they've been uh, going nuts this whole time. I'm sorry. If you could talk to that one person in the audience who they are right there at that line. They're right there on the cusp of making a decision to not drink or not use today and, and, and try to make that decision going forward. What would you say to them? Mm, goodness. Okay. Um, you don't have to fix everything today, but you do have to not pick that up. I, I think that's what I would say. I would say basically you, you only have one thing that you need to do today and that's not use. That's it. Everything else you can set aside. You don't have to be the perfect person. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and suddenly be Superman. It's a process for all of us, even those of us who never touched drugs or never touched alcohol. But the only thing that you have to do today, the only thing is just not use. That's it. Be beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, you, you, uh, you heard it here, folks, that that, that speaks to you. To take that, take that and run with it. You know, that's all you got to do. That's very simple too. I remember like when I came around, <clears throat> one of the first like real big things that somebody told me, and I had no reason to believe the guy, but he said, you're going to be all right. My whole fucking world is gone. I'd been clean for like maybe 24 hours. And he said, you know what, man, just don't use, you're going to be okay. And I fucking believed him. And you so will. far he's been right. You know? Yeah. I mean, look at, look at it like you are at the bottom of a literal pit and you have all these ladder rungs that you can climb. And all you have to do is your next five minutes is one step. 
Your next hour is one step. Your your half a day is another step. Like it is a little by little, piece by piece. Don't do anything other than just focus on that one step. That's all you have to do. Everything else after that is that can wait. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Kim, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Mad props to you. And thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will, uh, we, I hope that you'll make another appearance with us at some point. Oh, I'd be delighted to. And hopefully I'll keep staying sober. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The straight edge cock is coming to a, uh, LP convention near you. Yeah. (laughs) All right. See you later, Kim. Bye, honey. Huh? What did I tell you guys? Wasn't that great? Man, that was awesome. That was a fun interview. I, I Thanks again to uh, Kim for coming on and, and chatting with us and, and hanging out. And um, man, it, like she said, um, reach out to her. Reach out to me. Like, let's network, guys. You know, let's let's let each other know that, hey, you're not alone in this deal. You're not alone in this movement like you. You know, there's there's plenty of us to go around and uh, I, I want to get to know you. I know she wants to get to know you. And, and the more of us that band together and kind of, you know, network, the, the better chances that we have that we're not ever going to have to wonder, like, if we belong inside of a movement, you know, that that seems to at times glorify some of the more, you know, hedonistic nature of the human element and you know it's 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 one thing to you know say hey uh let's make recreational cocaine a thing and it's another thing to say hey you should go do recreational cocaine and it's that's kind of like that point that i brought up in there so and not that also makes me sound kind of like some weird televangelist type I, i don't know man like I'm not judging anybody like that's cool. I know for me, cocaine, (laughs) cocaine isn't a good idea. Uh, And I know that for a lot of people that they can understand that. But the gist of it is, is that um, when we network together, you know, our circle gets bigger and that's never a bad thing, especially if you're in recovery and you're you're chasing a abstinence uh, based lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, get with this. And I hope beyond hope that if you have any type of. Uh, knowledge about, you know, formulation of a caucus or, you know, how this thing should look or whatever else, or have any ideas, man, get with me. Cause I really want to see this, this, uh, pick up steam and, and gain some traction. And I believe that it will, it will when it's supposed to. So the beginning stage has been laid out. The announcement's been made. Let's go forward and make this thing happen. And, uh, so, like I said, thanks a lot for Kim Ruff for coming on. Guys, if you're not following her on Facebook or I uh, believe she still frequents the Twitter page. I'll have to get with her on that. Anyway, but she's definitely on Facebook. Give her a follow. Just an awesome person with some awesome viewpoints and very knowledgeable when it comes to liberty. And so uh going to segue right into the song of the day. And I could not think of a better song than the one and only Minor Threat. Uh, this is a band from like the American hardcore days, man. This is back when like punk rock really took hold here in the United States. And uh, Minor Threat, they had this song called Straight Edge. And it's exactly what it sounds like, man. You know, the, the punk movement at the time, there was a lot of people getting fucked up and doing this or doing that. And uh, they, they didn't partake. And so uh, this is their... This is their little kind of 
you know, uh, moment. This is their straight edge caucus moment with their with their own song. So, anyways, I'm gonna leave you guys with Minor Threats, Straight Edge. <laughs>